In solving a problem of this sort, the grand thing is to be able to reason backwards. It's a very useful accomplishment and a very easy one, but people do not practice it very much. Heavens to Betsy. Oh, scare the bejesus right out of me. Are you kidding me? It's a flash flood warning in this area till 4.45pm. Avoid flooded areas. That's a severe alert. Now, where on earth in Southern California is it going to flash flood? Come on now. I will warn you, the rain did come on pretty quick. Can you hear them all, them all flutter? <sighs> that was... That was disturbingly loud and quick. We began our adventure with Sherlock uh, meeting Watson, or perhaps more properly put, Watson meeting Sherlock. We are following this as though they are the memoirs of Dr. John Watson. Uh, he is a war veteran, he's in London, he's bored, and he's poor, so he needs something to interest him and some way to keep his costs down. He meets an odd fellow named Sherlock Holmes, a consulting detective who likes to sort of pick up where uh, professional detectives have left off uh, and solve crimes that no one else seems able to solve. Sherlock Holmes manages to solve both of Dr. Watson's major issues. They share an apartment together, and Sherlock Holmes seems to be an endlessly fascinating individual um, who is also looking for a human who sort of can tolerate his eccentricities. Watson can do so, because frankly, he doesn't have a lot else going on. He's looking for something to, to, uh, to fascinate him, and Sherlock Holmes provides. Sherlock Holmes brings Watson on, uh, on one of his consultation outings, shall we say, on one of his consultations. We find a very curious crime scene, wherein there's a man dead on the floor, blood all around, and yet no sign of a, uh, of a bleeding wound on the victim. There is a ring in the victim's pocket, a woman's wedding ring, it seems. Uh, and on the wall, the word rache, R-A-C-H-E, written in blood. Rache means revenge in German. All this is very strange. Um, and uh, throughout a course of interviews and uh, 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 additional crime scenes, Sherlock Holmes manages to unfortunately, destroy the theories of Detectives Lestrade, and it's not Granger, but y'all know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Gregson, there we go, I found it. It's only, it's taking every, every episode, I'm gonna find it a little bit quicker. Um, Lestrade and Gregson. Um, uh, Sherlock manages to prove those inconsistent. Uh, there is another murder victim. Uh, this one seems to have been poisoned, and there are poison caplets on the scene, and yet only half of them seem to be poisoned. Uh, at the same time, Sherlock Holmes himself has managed to uh, put out an ad for this ring that has been lost. Someone shows up to get it, an old woman, and yet it turns out the old woman is actually a very talented escape artist dressed in a disguise. What is going on here? Well, at the end, Sherlock says, well, I'm going on a trip, uh, and I'm afraid that until uh, I come back from my trip and things are all sorted, I'm not going to be able to share with you the details of my, uh, of my investigations here and how I was able to determine the, the true culprit of all of this. Uh, by the way, young lad who I, who I keep on my payroll because you're a better listener out on the streets than most folks, uh, would you please go down and ask the cabbie to help me with my luggage? The cabbie comes up, Sherlock slaps some cuffs on him, and Sherlock introduces him as Jefferson Hope, the murderer of our two victims. 
What? Excuse me? That's the end of part one. We are now halfway through part two, and we're going to be finishing the other half today. Today is going to be chapters five, six, and seven uh, to bring us to the end of A Study in Scarlet. But chapters one, two, three, and four of part two. Part two titled The Country of the Saints. Chapters one, two, three, four. We find that we're in a whole new story. There's a man dying in the desert with a young girl. He's found, he says, this girl is going to be my adoptive daughter. Uh, no one will separate her from me. And we find that this is true. As they are rescued from the desert by a caravan of Mormons heading out to uh, what they believe to be some sort of promised land, um, they, uh, over, the, over the many years that follow, uh, the man finds himself very wealthy, as he is a, a, a hardworking, diligent man. Um, and his daughter... Um, has become kind of the jewel of the area, the flower. I don't remember precisely what the title was, but uh, the local flower. <laughs> that sounds crazy. No, um, uh, she's beautiful and uh, desirable. Now, I use that word carefully because this desire is not all positive. This man, his name is John Ferrier. He's become very wealthy, but he has sworn to his own heart. He made a promise to the Mormons. I will live as a Mormon, but the one way in which he has not done so is that his daughter is unmarried, and he himself is also unmarried. He's sworn in his own heart. His daughter will never marry a Mormon. He would consider it a sham marriage, and his daughter agrees entirely. She has no desire to marry a Mormon. She finds that a, a man traveling through has caught her fancy, Mr. Jefferson Hope. He comes through, they fall in love. He goes off to sort of establish himself in uh, in a proper line of business so that he can provide for, uh, you know, for her and, and his family, whatever that might end up meaning. Um, but as he's away, John Ferrier, Lucy Ferrier, they are approached and the leader of these Mormons says, you've got 30 days to get your daughter married to one of the eligible Mormons here in town. Now, we've been hearing about what happens to people who turn away from the church, even for slight offenses. We've been hearing about a group called the Avenging Angels. They're Mormons, Mormon assassins, if we are to uh, kind of properly understand all the rumors surrounding them. These Mormon assassins, for the course of this month, they place the countdown every morning, it says... Uh, written on a wall, 30. The next day, written across the door, 29. The next day, written above the, 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 the breakfast table, 28. So on and so on. They send a letter out to Jefferson Hope, hoping that he will come back in time to help them out of the situation because the roads are watched. No one gets out of town without the permission of uh, the, the Council of Four, the, the sort of the, the high Mormons. 28 turns to 20, 20 turns to 15, 15 to 10. Jefferson Hope still has not returned. They've still got hope that he will come. Five days, four days, three days, two days. And finally, sneaking up to the house because he knows that it is watched, Jefferson Hope crawls on, on his belly up to the front door. They meet up and... Jefferson Hope makes preparations for uh, uh, Lucy and for her father, John, to escape with him. 
Jefferson Hope leads Lucy Ferrier and John Ferrier out past the final watchman into the wilderness toward Carson. Chapter 5, The Avenging Angels All night their course lay through intricate defiles and over irregular and rock-strewn paths. More than once they lost their way, but Hope's intimate knowledge of the mountains enabled them to regain the track once more. When morning broke, a scene of marvelous, though savage, beauty lay before them. In every direction, the great snow-capped peaks hemmed them in, peeping over each other's shoulders to the far horizon. So steep were the rocky banks on either side of them that the larch and the pine seemed to be suspended over their heads, and only need of a gust of wind to come hurling down at them. Nor was the fear entirely an illusion, for the barren valley was thickly strewn with trees and boulders which had fallen in a similar manner. Even as they passed, a great rock came thundering down with a hoarse rattle which woke the echoes in ancient gorges and startled the weary horses into a gallop. As the sun rose slowly above the eastern horizon, the caps of the great mountains lit up one after the other, like lamps at a festival, until they were all ruddy and glowing. The magnificent spectacle cheered the hearts of the three fugitives and gave them fresh energy. At a wild torrent which swept out of a ravine, they called a halt and watered their horses, while they partook of a hasty breakfast. Lucy and her father would have fain rested longer, but Jefferson Hope was inexorable. They'll be upon our track by this time he said. Everything depends on our speed. Once safe in Carson, we may rest for the remainder of our lives. During the whole of that day, they struggled on through the defiles, and by evening they calculated that they were more than thirty miles from their enemies. At nighttime, they chose the base of a beetling crag where the rocks offered some protection from the chill wind, and there huddled together for warmth. They enjoyed a few hours' sleep. Before daybreak, however, they were up and on their way once more. They had seen no signs of any pursuers, and Jefferson Hope was beginning to think they were fairly out of reach of the terrible organization whose enmity they had incurred. He knew little how far that iron grasp could reach, or how soon it was to close upon them and crush them. About the middle of the second day, their scanty store of provisions began to run out. This gave the hunter little uneasiness, however, for there was game to be had among the mountains, and he had frequently before had to depend upon his rifle for the needs of his life. Choosing a sheltered nook, he piled together a few dried branches and made a blazing fire, at which his companions might warm themselves, for they were now nearly five thousand feet above sea level, and the air was bitter and keen. Having tethered the horses, bade Lucy adieu, he threw his gun over his shoulder and set out in search of whatever chance might throw his way. Looking back, he saw the old man and the young girl crouched over the blazing fire, while the three animals stood motionless in the background. Then the intervening rocks hid them from his view. He walked for a couple of miles through one ravine after another without success, though from the marks upon the barks of trees and other indications, he judged there were numerous bears in the vicinity. At last, after two or three hours of fruitless search, he was thinking of turning back in despair, when, casting his eyes upward, he saw a sight which sent a thrill of pleasure through his heart. On the edge of a jutting pinnacle three or four hundred feet above him, 
There stood a creature somewhat resembling a sheep in appearance, but armed with gigantic horns. The big horn, for so it was called, was acting probably as a guardian over a flock which were invisible to the hunter, but fortunately it was heading in the opposite direction and had not perceived him. Lying on his face, he rested his rifle upon a rock and took a long and steady aim before drawing the trigger. The animal sprang into the air, tottered for a moment upon the edge of a precipice, and then came crashing down to the valley beneath. The creature was too unwieldy to lift, so the hunter contented himself with cutting away one haunch and part of the flank. With his trophy over his shoulder, he hastened to retrace his steps, for the evening was already drawing in. He had hardly started, however, before he realized the difficulty which faced him. In his eagerness, he had wandered far past the ravines which were known to him, and it was no easy matter to pick up the path which he had taken. The valley in which he found himself divided and subdivided into many gorges, and each was so like the other it was impossible to distinguish one from the other. He followed one for a mile or more till he came to a mountain torrent which he was sure he had never seen before. Convinced he had taken the wrong turn, he tried another with the same result. Night was coming on rapidly, and it was almost dark before he at last found himself in a defile which was familiar to him. And then it was no easy matter to keep the right track, for the moon had not yet risen, and the high cliffs on either side made the obscurity more profound. Weighed down with his burden, weary from exhaustions, he stumbled along, keeping up his heart by the reflection that every step brought him nearer to Lucy and that he carried with him enough to ensure them food for the remainder of their journey. He had now come to the mouth of the very defile in which he had left them. In the darkness he could recognize the outline of the cliffs which bounded it. They must, he reflected, be waiting him anxiously, for he had been absent nearly five hours. In the gladness of his heart he put his hands to his mouth and made the glen re-echo to a loud halloo as a signal that he was coming. He paused and listened for an answer. None came back, save his own cry, which clattered up the dreary, silent ravines and was borne back to his ears in countless repetitions. Again he shouted, even louder than before, and again no whisper came back from the friends whom he had left such a short time ago. A vague, nameless dread came over him and he hurried on frantically, dropping the precious food in his agitation. When he turned the corner, he came in full sight of the spot where the fire had been lit. There was still a glowing pile of wood ashes there, but it had evidently not been tended since his departure. The same dead silence still reigned all around. With his fears all changed to convictions, he hurried on. There was no living creature near the remains of the fire. Animals, man, maiden... All were gone. It was only too clear that some sudden and terrible disaster had occurred in his absence, a disaster which had embraced them all, and yet left no traces behind it. Bewildered and stunned by this blow, Jefferson Hope felt his head spin round, and he had to lean upon his rifle to save himself from falling. He was essentially a man of action, however, and speedily recovered from his temporary impotence. Seizing a half-consumed piece of wood from the smoldering fire, he blew it into a flame, and proceeded with its help to examine the little camp. The ground was all stamped down by the feet of horses, showing that a large party of mounted men had overtaken the fugitives, and the direction of their tracks proved that they had afterward turned back to Salt Lake City. Had they carried back both of his companions with them? 
Jefferson Hope had almost persuaded himself they must have done so, when his eye fell upon an object which made every nerve in his body tingle within him. A little way on one side of the camp was a low-lying heap of reddish soil, which had assuredly not been there before. There was no mistaking it for anything but a newly dug grave. As the young hunter approached it, he perceived that a stick had been planted on it, with a sheet of paper stuck to the cleft fork of it. The inscription upon the paper was brief, but to the point. John Ferrier, formerly of Salt Lake City, died August 4th, 1860. The sturdy old man, whom he had left so short a time before, was gone. And this, then, was all of his epitaph. Jefferson Hope looked wildly around to see if there was a second grave, but there was no sign of one. Lucy had been carried back by their terrible pursuers to fulfill her original destiny by becoming one of the harem of the elder's son. As the young fellow realized the certainty of her fate and his own powerlessness to prevent it, he wished that he, too, was lying with the old farmer in his last silent resting place. Again, however, his active spirit shook off the lethargy which springs from despair. If there was nothing else left to him, he could at least devote his life to revenge. With indomitable patience and perseverance, Jefferson Hope possessed also a power of sustained vindictiveness, which he may have learned from the Native Americans amongst whom he had lived. As he stood by the desolate fire, he felt that the only one thing which could assuage his grief would be thorough and complete retribution brought by his own hand upon his enemies. His strong will and untiring energy should, he determined, be devoted to that end. With a grim, white face, he retraced his steps to where he had dropped the food, and having stirred up the smoldering fire, he cooked enough to last for a few days. This he made up into a bundle, and, tired as he was, he set himself to walk back through the mountains upon the track of the avenging angels. For five days... He toiled, footsore and weary, through the defiles which he had already traversed on horseback. At night he flung himself down upon the rocks and snatched a few hours of sleep, but before daybreak he was always well on his way. On the sixth day, he reached the Eagle Canyon, from which they had commenced their ill-fated flight. Thence he could look down upon the home of the saints. Worn and exhausted, he leaned upon his rifle and shook his gaunt hand fiercely at the silent, widespread city beneath him. As he looked at it, he observed there were flags in some of the principal streets and other signs of festivity. He was still speculating as to what this might mean when he heard the clatter of horses' hooves and saw a mounted man riding toward him. As he approached, he recognized him as a Mormon named Cowper, to whom he had rendered services at different times. He therefore accosted him when he got up to him with the object of finding out what Lucy's farrier's fate had been. I am Jefferson Hope, he said. You remember me. The Mormon looked at him with undisguised astonishment. Indeed, it was difficult to recognize in this tattered, unkempt wanderer with ghostly white face and wild, fierce eyes the spruce young hunter of former days. Having, however, at last satisfied himself as to his identity, the man's surprise changed to consternation. "'You are mad to come here,' he cried. 
It is worth as much as my own life is worth to be seen talking to you. There's a warrant against you from the Holy Four for assisting the farriers away. I don't fear them or their warrant, Hope said. You must know something of this matter, Copper. I conjure you by everything you hold dear to answer to a few questions. We've always been friends. For God's sake, don't refuse to answer me. What is it? The Mormon asked uneasily. Be quick. The very rocks have ears and trees have eyes. What has become of Lucy Ferrier? She were married yesterday to young Drebber. Hold up, man, hold up. You got no life left in you. You don't mind me, said Hope faintly. He was white to the very lips. He had sunk down against the stone which he had been used to lean. Married, you say? Married yesterday. I took those flags around for the endowment house. There were some words between young Drebber and young Stangerson as to which was to have her. They'd both been in the party what followed them, and Stangerson had shot her father, which seemed to give him the best claim. But when they argued it out in the council, Drebber's party was the stronger, so Prophet gave it over to him. No one won't have her very long, though, for I saw death in her face yesterday. She was more like a ghost than a woman. Well, are you off, then? Yes, I am off, said Jefferson Hope, who had risen from his seat. His face might have been chiseled out of marble, so hard and set was his expression, while its eyes glowed with a baleful light. Why are you going? Never mind, he answered, and slinging his weapon over his shoulder, strode off down the gorge and so away into the heart of the mountains, to the haunts of the wild beasts. Amongst them all there was none so fierce and so dangerous as himself. The prediction of the Mormon was only too well fulfilled. Whether it was the terrible death of her father or the effects of the hateful marriage into which she had been forced, poor Lucy never held up her head again, but pined away and died within a month. Her sottish husband, who had married her principally for the sake of John Ferrier's property, did not affect any great grief at his bereavement, but his other wives mourned over her and sat up with her the night before the burial, as is the Mormon custom. They were grouped round the bier in the early hours of the morning, when, to their inexpressible fear and astonishment, the door was flung open, and a savage-looking, weather-beaten man in tattered garments strode into the room. Without a glance or a word to the cowering women, he walked up to the white, silent figure which had once contained the pure soul of Lucy Ferrier. Stooping over her, he pressed his lips reverently to her cold forehead, and then, snatching up her hand, he took the wedding ring from her finger. "'She shall not be buried in that!' he cried with a fierce snarl, and before an alarm could be raised, he sprung down the stairs and was gone. So strange and so brief was the episode that the watchers might have found it hard to believe it themselves, or to persuade other people of it, had it not been for the undeniable fact that the circlet of gold which marked her as having been a bride had disappeared." For some months, Jefferson Hope lingered amongst the mountains, leading a strange, wild life and nursing in his heart the fierce desire for vengeance which possessed him. Tales were told in the city of the weird figure which was seen prowling about the suburbs and which haunted the lonely mountain gorges. 
once a bullet whistled through Stangerson's window and flattened itself upon the wall within a foot of him. On another occasion, as Drebber passed under a cliff, a great boulder crashed down onto him, and he only escaped a terrible death by throwing himself upon his face. The two young Mormons were not long in discovering the reason of these attempts on their lives, and led repeated expeditions into the mountains in hopes of capturing or killing their enemy, but always without success. They had adopted the precaution of never going out alone, or after nightfall, and having their houses guarded. After a time, they were able to relax these measures, for nothing was either heard or seen of their opponent, and they hoped that time had cooled his vindictiveness. Far from doing so, it had, if anything, augmented it. The hunter's mind was of a hard, unyielding nature, and the predominant idea of revenge had taken such a complete possession of it that there was no room for any other emotion. He was, however, above all things, practical. He soon realized that even his iron constitution could not stand the incessant strain that he was putting upon it. Exposure and want of wholesome food were wearing him out. If he died like a dog amongst the mountains, what was to become of his revenge then? And yet such a death was sure to overtake him if he persisted. He felt that that was to play his enemy's game. So he reluctantly returned to the old Nevada mines to recruit his health and to amass enough money to allow him to pursue his object without privation. His intention had been to be absent a year at most, but a combination of unforeseen circumstances prevented him leaving the mines for nearly five. At the end of that time, however, his memory of his wrongs and his craving for revenge were quite as keen as on that memorable night when he stood by John Ferrier's grave. Disguised, and under an assumed name, he returned to Salt Lake City, careless of what became of his own life as long as he obtained what he knew to be justice. There he found evil tidings waiting for him. There had been a schism amongst the chosen people a few months before, some of the earlier members of the church having rebelled against the authority of the elders, and the result having been a secession of a number of the malcontents who had left Utah and become Gentiles. Among these had been Drebber and Stangerson, and no one knew whither they had gone. Rumor reported that Drebber had managed to convert a large part of his property into money, and that he had departed a wealthy man, while his companion, Stangerson, was comparatively poor. There was no clue at all, however, as to their whereabouts. Many a man, however vindictive, would abandon all thought of revenge in the face of such difficulty, but Jefferson Hope never faltered for a moment. With the small competence he possessed, eked out by such employment as he could pick up, he traveled from town to town through the United States in quest of his enemies. Year passed into year. His black hair turned grizzled, but still he wandered on, a human bloodhound with his mind wholly set upon the one object to which he had devoted his life. At last his perseverance was rewarded. It was but a glance of a face in a window. But it was one glance, and it told him that Cleveland in Ohio possessed the man whom he was in pursuit of. He returned to his miserable lodgings with his plan of vengeance all arranged. It chanced, however, that Drebber, looking out from his window, had recognized the vagrant on the street and had read murder in his eyes. He hurried before a justice of the peace, accompanied by Stangerson, who had become his private secretary, and represented to him that they were in danger, danger of their lives from the jealousy and hatred of an old rival. That evening, Jefferson Hope was taken into custody, and not being able to find sureties, was detained for some weeks. 
When at last he was liberated, it was only to find that Drebber's house was deserted and that he and his secretary had departed for Europe. Again, the Avenger had been foiled. And again, his concentrated hatred urged him to continue the pursuit. Funds were wanting, however, and for some time he had to return to work, saving every dollar for his approaching journey. At last, having collected enough to keep life in him, he departed for Europe and tracked his enemies from city to city, working his way in any menial capacity but never overtaking the fugitives. When he arrived in St. Petersburg, they had departed for Paris, and when he followed them, he had learned that they had just set off for Copenhagen. At the Danish capital, he was again a few days late, for they had journeyed to London, where he at last succeeded in running them to earth. As to what occurred there, we cannot do better than to quote the old hunter's own account, as duly recorded in Dr. John Watson's journal, to which we are already under such obligations. It is an exciting story, is it not? There's a lot of excitement. Uh, Gwendog, um, you certainly can go back. Uh, don't forget, we are going to do a, a spot of review, um, the most intense portion of which will be dedicated to the chapter that we just read. Um, so never you fear. If you want to just hang with us here, you could do so. Um, I will say, uh, other than uh, the the sort of like the length of descriptions, I can summarize the previous chapter in just a few things. There's not a lot of dialogue. Um, and so you, I don't think you will like... You won't miss a ton if you just stick with us here. But if you want to go back and re-listen, that is quite all right. Um, folks, a very exciting story of of wrong, of revenge, of, I mean, what did I, what was I just talking about before the stream, right? I'm, I'm making a hack of Blades in the Dark called The Roaring Dark, and the whole point of it is very much like his chase. Um... Uh, uh, you know, globe-trotting, conspiracy-solving, uh, uh, crime-solving. This is the sort of thing that is just... I, I love these stories, right? I love these. Now, there are absolutely... There are absolutely issues with it. Let's let's address one of those uh, major ones first and foremost. Um, in spite of this, at the very least, you know... Uh, at, so let, let's, let's just put it in Proteus Spade's own words because, yeah, I think Proteus Spade called it out very succinctly barely passes the sexy lamp test, and that's only due to her actually liking the guy. Pretty much, Proteus Spade. Um, this, this, this story does go just one step past. The, the sexy lamp test is essentially, could the woman in this story be replaced by a sexy lamp, and, and would it make that much of a difference to the overall plot of it? And the answer to this in this story is barely no. Barely no. Does it pass the test? Yes, but only, only just. Um, because, of course, you know, consider how much of this is Lucy Ferrier's story, right? A considerable amount of it. As a matter of fact, it would have been a delight to uh, to read about, um, you know, Lucy trying to, like, navigate town. You know, her father's, like, old and not doing much out in the world. The, the account of Lucy Ferrier would have been an exciting one. But, even though this story essentially centers around Lucy Ferrier, we get very little time with her, and it very much becomes about John Ferrier, her adoptive father, and about Jefferson Hope, um, who uh, uh, who will take revenge for her. 
So that is a, this idea of the sexy lamp. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a, a test of of art specifically like narrative art, um, wherein uh, you sort of say to yourself, could this character, usually a woman, be replaced by a sexy lamp without much changing the story? And if the answer is yes, you could replace that character with a sexy lamp. That means you have not done that that specific character justice. You're doing more justice to all the people who are reacting to the fate of the lamp. So, I want to make sure that we have addressed that going out, right? Let's let's talk about some of these things so that they are on the table. Um, and with that, let's also discuss the the chapter itself, you know, the things that we have been able to gain from it. Because um, uh, flaws do not make something evil, much in the same way that good qualities do not make something perfect. Let's talk about this. Uh, let's talk about this in its, in its entirety. Um, Proteus Spade says, still a better Wild West Mormon revenge story than Honest Hearts. Uh, yes, very rare fallout shade from me. And Proteus Spade, I know nothing about uh, Honest Hearts, so you may have to enlighten us as to that one. Um, let's see. Sparkle Lovegood says, I was apparently listening to a recording of the current reading. I had to exit and come back to be listening live. I didn't realize uh, until I wanted to post a comment. I don't know how that works, Sparkle Lovegood. That's very strange. I don't I don't have a recording of this. This is my first time reading this <laughs> on, on camera, on a microphone. Um... Um, let's see. Yeah, Gwendog, never heard that that term before. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those tests, a little bit like the Bechdel test. Um, but frankly, the Bechdel test I think does a better job. Yeah, the only reason it passes here is because yes, Lucy Ferrier does indeed um, perhaps conveniently share her father's uh, opinions about uh, the the Mormon Church about how she never wishes to be married to a Mormon. She would consider it a sham as well. She would rather die than be married to a Mormon. Um, and uh, she is genuinely in love with uh, with our Jefferson Hope. But now she's gone, and now she's dead. Um, and we will be covering that in just a moment in our review. Purdy said, not gonna lie. If I hadn't already known about the other Sherlock stories, I would have thought Lucy was in on the revenge. It would seem appropriate, wouldn't it? Folks, a spot of review, and we move on into our next chapter. As I mentioned to you all, we are finishing off this book today. Let me see here. We're going to launch on into chapter 6, but a review of chapter 5. Of course, up until this point, we've been following Sherlock and Watson on the trail of uh, these, essentially, two murdered men. A couple of different uh, potential uh, suspects in this, including the other party. And yet, we find ourselves uh, uh, with Sherlock Holmes as he introduces Jefferson Hope at the very end of part 1 here part one out of the two parts in this book um he introduces jefferson hope as the murderer and we find that in part two his story is laid out we start with john farrier lucy farrier the two of them growing up in mormon territory but not really being mormons not really in their hearts and uh, we find that the, the the mormons have their own sort of like illuminati kind of uh, secret society which is very violent uh mormon assassins i think would be a fair way to put it and John and Lucy Ferrier get on their bad side. Lucy Ferrier will not marry any of the eligible men in Mormon country, and as such, uh, they and her her new love, uh, uh, Jefferson Hope, head out and uh, make a daring escape, in fact. There's a loud noise coming from outside. I'm wondering if it's rain. I think it might be rain. Let me go check the window really quickly. I'm going to finish our review, and then I'm going to go check. I hope it's rain. 
<laughs> both, both because I like rain and because anything else that could be making that noise is like really bad news. <laughs> um, uh, Jade Dragon. Ooh, okay. I have to. I had to pause. Any? No, I want to do it after, so it'll, it'll stay in the recording. Let me continue with my review here. Um, we followed them out into the wilderness. They've made it maybe halfway to Carson, as far as I can tell. Um, the important thing is, as of chapter five, which we just read. Jefferson Hope has to leave for just a few hours to go hunt down some food because they're low on provisions. He leaves John and Lucy Ferrier by a campfire. He's gone, gets a little lost, come back, comes back later than he had anticipated, and he finds them gone. Hunts around a little bit, finds a fresh grave marked for the body of John Ferrier. He surmises Lucy Ferrier has been dragged back to the land of the Mormons and has now been uh, forcibly wed to into one of their harems. He returns to Salt Lake City, finds his suspicions are correct, and that Lucy Ferrier, unfortunately, um, filled with grief after having been stolen away and very possibly witnessing the, the murder of her father, she dies after a month of grief. Jefferson Hope is not able to rescue her in this time, and... Uh, just manages to burst in uh, as she is, as her body is sort of lying in state here. No, lying in state, is that is that right? I think, I want to say that that might be specific to uh, government and military funerals, but I could be wrong about that. Um, as as her body is, is uh, lying here before the burial, uh, he bursts in, takes the ring off of her finger, and says she won't be buried in this. He embarks upon a quest of revenge, which, uh, because he is very poor and uh, he is not able to accrue enough money, um, he goes back to the mines for five years, just disappears for five years, comes back to take his revenge and finds that the two principal offenders here, uh, Stangerson and the other one, uh, Drebber. Drebber and Stangerson uh, are no longer even Mormons. Only one of them was able to put, up, uh, uh, put together enough money to really get out of there in a rich way, and uh, now... He chases them across the United States. Um, he chases them over into Europe. And every time he arrives in a new city and has to work for a little while to find where they are, by that time they're already moved on to another city. And finally, he chases them to London. And from there, it simply says, well, how could we get a better account except from Jefferson Hope's own mouth? And that's where we are. Which means we are returning to, uh, the, the title of chapter 6 is A Continuation of the Reminiscences of John Watson, M.D. Uh, this means that we are, we are going to arrive back in the sort of present moment, uh, the, the Watsonian present. Um, and uh, I do want to say, Proteus Spade says, uh, if it was Lucy who's in on the revenge, that would have been satisfying. Um, and uh, Jade Dragon says, yeah, it would have been better if Lucy had faked her own death and become a gunslinger or something. And yeah, I think that would have been a cool story. That definitely would have been. I like that idea. Maybe we'll write that one ourselves. Um, everybody, I'm going to go check on the window and find out if that really is just like, like a proper storm going on. Uh, I'll be right back. If it is, I've got to go say hi to Cassidy. Ooh, it's very much raining, gang. It's it's really raining, uh, and the bathroom window was open, so I did have to shut that. I think no damage done, uh, but I gotta go say hi to Cass. I'll be right back. I love you. I'll see you later.
Okay, gang. Like going to look at the rain is is kind of goofy, especially for you folks who are uh, back in back in where I was born and raised, uh, back in the Midwest. We don't actually have southern accents in the Midwest, um, not everywhere at least. Um, but uh, we get it so infrequently here in Southern California that it is just like it's really exciting to see it. I gotta I gotta get out of here. I gotta get somewhere where it rains. <laughs> Uh, let me see. Escar Lovett says, good morning, America forecasted rain. Okay, good news. Yeah, as far as I, uh, Cass said, it, it's uh, supposed to rain for another two hours or so, which is grand. And then a little bit more tonight, but not in the same, not at the same uh, um, velocity. Gwendog says, what happened to the green screen bookcase? Do you mean just like the green screen in general? Um, like, like uh, you know, th what happened to my green screen behind me in this? Um, and I suppose the answer to that is, uh, I left it down. Um, something I was trying during book fair, but frankly, like, I don't know, um, most streamers, like, like to have a little bit of room visible, but for me, it's just like, there's like a section of couch and then some art that I have to keep out of the way so it's not in front of the, uh, the air conditioning unit, which I, I guess I could fix it for right now. Um, cause I do like it. It's a big, uh, it's a big ship being attacked attacked by a kraken um but i don't know i don't know it's not really doing it for me not like the green screen was so i may i may go back we'll see folks we've heard our review we have looked at the rain we've said hello to Cass. we've talked about the bookcase lucy farrier is dead and all that is left as we have heard the final tales of Jefferson Hope's traversal of Europe following Drebber and Stangerson across the different countries to their various capitals and such, uh, always staying just one city behind. Now we catch up with Jefferson Hope himself. Chapter 6, A Continuation of the Reminiscences of John Watson, M.D. Our prisoner's furious resistance did not apparently indicate any ferocity in his disposition toward ourselves, for on finding himself powerless he smiled in an affable manner and expressed his hopes that he did not hurt any of us in the scuffle. "'I guess you're going to take me to the police station,' he remarked to Sherlock Holmes. "'My cab's at the door. If you'll loose my legs, I'll walk down to it.' I'm not so light to lift as I used to be. Gregson and Lestrade exchanged glances as if they thought this proposition was a rather bold one, but Holmes at once took the prisoner at his word and loosened the towel which we had bound around his ankles. He rose and stretched his legs as though to assure himself that they were free once more. I remember that I thought to myself as I eyed him that I had seldom seen a more powerfully built man, and his dark sunburned face bore an expression of determination and energy which was as formidable as his personal strength. If there's a vacant place for a chief of the police, I reckon you're the man for it, he said, gazing with undisguised admiration at my fellow lodger. The way that you kept on my trail was a caution. You'd better come with me, said Holmes to the two detectives. I can't drive you, said Lestrade. 
Good. And Gregson, you can come inside with me too. You too, Doctor. You've taken an interest in the case, and you may as well stick with us. I assented gladly, and we all descended together. Our prisoner made no attempt at escape, but stepped calmly into the cab which had been his, and we followed him. Lestrade mounted the box, whipped up the horse, and brought us in a very short time to our destination. We were ushered into a small chamber where a chief inspector noted down our prisoner's name and the names of the men whose murder he had been charged with. The official was a white-faced, unemotional man who went through his duties in a dull, mechanical way. "'The prisoner will be put before the magistrates in the course of the week,' he said. "'In the meantime, Mr. Jefferson Hope, have you anything you wish to say?' I must warn you that your words will be taken down and may be used against you. I've got a good deal to say, our prisoner said slowly. I want to tell you gentlemen all about it. Hadn't you better reserve that for your trial? asked the inspector. I may never be tried, he answered. Mm, you needn't look so startled. It isn't suicide I'm thinking of. Are you a doctor? He turned his fierce eyes upon me as he asked this last question. Well, yeah, I am, I answered. Put your hand here, he said with a smile, motioning with his manacled wrists toward his chest. I did so and became at once conscious of an extraordinary throbbing and commotion which was going on inside. The walls of his chest seemed to thrill and quiver as a frail building would do inside when some powerful engine was at work. In the silence of the room, I could hear a dull humming and buzzing noise, which was proceeding from the same source. What? I cried. You've got an aortic aneurysm. That's what they called it, he said placidly. I went to a doctor last week about it, and he told me that it's bound to burst before many days have passed. It's been getting worse for years. I got it from overexposure and underfeeding among the Salt Lake Mountains. I've done my work now, and I don't care as soon as I go, but I should like to leave some account of the business behind me. I don't want to be remembered as a common cutthroat. The inspector and the two detectives had a hurried discussion as to the advisability of allowing him to tell his story. Do you consider, Doctor, that there is immediate danger? The former asked. There most certainly is, I answered. In that case, it is clearly our duty, in the interest of justice, to take his statement, said the inspector. You are at liberty, sir, to give your account, which I again warn you will be taken down. I'll sit down with your leave, the prisoner said, suiting the action to the word. This aneurysm of mine makes me easily tired, and the tussle we had half an hour ago is not mended matters. I'm on the brink of death, and I am not likely to lie to you. Every word I say is the absolute truth, and how you use it is a matter of no consequence to me. With these words, Jefferson Hope leaned back in his chair and began the following remarkable statement. He spoke in a calm and methodical manner, as though the events which he narrated were commonplace enough. I can vouch for the accuracy of the subjoined account, for I have had access to Lestrade's notebook, in which the prisoner's words were taken down exactly as they were uttered. It don't much matter to you why I hated these men, he said. 
It's enough that they were guilty of the death of two human beings, a father and a daughter, and that they had therefore forfeited their own lives. After the lapse of time that has passed since their crime, it was impossible for me to secure a conviction with them in any court. I knew of their guilt, though. I determined I should be judge, jury, and executioner all rolled into one. You'd have done the same if you had any manhood in you, if you'd been in my place. That girl I spoke of was to have married me twenty years ago. She was forced into marrying that same drebber and broke her heart over it. I took the marriage ring from her dead finger and vowed that his dying eyes should rest upon that very ring, and that his last thoughts should be of the crime for which he was punished. I have carried it about with me, and have followed him and his accomplice over two continents until I caught them. They thought to tire me out, but they could not do it. If I die tomorrow, as is likely enough, I die knowing that my work in this world is done, and done well. They've perished, and by my hand, there's nothing left for me to hope for or to desire. They were rich, and I was poor, so it was not easy for me to follow them. When I got to London, my pocket was about empty, and I found that I must turn my hand to something for my living. Driving and riding are as natural to me as walking, so I applied at a cab owner's office and soon got employment. I was to bring a certain sum a week to the owner, and whatever was left over I might keep for myself. There was seldom much left over, but I managed to scrape along somehow. The hardest job was to learn my way about, for I reckoned that of all the mazes that was ever contrived, this city was the most confusing. I had a map beside me, though, and... When once I had spotted the principal hotels and stations, I got along pretty well. It was some time before I found out where the two gentlemen were living, but I inquired and inquired until at last I dropped across them. They were at a boarding house at Camberwell, over the other side of the river. When once I found them, I knew that I had them at my mercy. I had grown my beard, and there was no chance of their recognizing me. I would dog them and follow them till I saw my opportunity. I was determined that they should not escape me again. They were always very near doing it for all that. Go where they would about London, I was always at their heels. Sometimes I followed them in my cab and sometimes on foot, but the former was the best, for then they could not get away from me. It was only early in the morning or late at night I could earn anything, so I began to get behind hand with my employer. I did not mind that, however, as long as I could lay my hand upon the men that I wanted. They were very cunning, though. They must have thought that there was some chance of their being followed, for they would never go out alone, and never after nightfall. During two weeks, I drove behind them every day, and never once saw them separate. Drebber himself was drunk half the time, but Stangerson would not be caught napping. I watched them late and early, but never saw the ghost of a chance. But I was not discouraged, for something told me that the hour had almost come. My only fear was that this thing in my chest might burst a little too soon and leave my work undone. At last, one evening, I was driving up and down Torquay Terrace, as the street was called in which they had boarded, when I saw a cab drive up to their door. Presently some luggage was brought out, and after a time Drebber and Stangerson followed it and drove off. 
I whipped up my horse and kept within sight of them, feeling very ill at ease, for I feared that they were going to shift their quarters. At Euston Station they got out, and I left a boy to hold my horse and followed them to the platform. I heard them ask for the Liverpool train, and the guard answered that one had just gone and there would be another one in some hours. Stangerson seemed to be put out at that, but Drebber was rather pleased. I got so close to them in the bustle I could hear every word that passed between them. Drebber said that he had a little business of his own to do, and that if the other would wait for him, he would soon rejoin him. His companion remonstrated with him, and reminded him that they had resolved to stick together. Drebber answered that the matter was a delicate one, that he must go alone. I could not catch what Stangerson said to that, but the other burst out swearing and reminded him that he was nothing more than his paid servant. He must not presume to dictate to him. On that, the secretary gave it up as a bad job and simply bargained with him that if he missed the last train, he should rejoin him at Halliday's private hotel, to which Drebber answered he would be back on the platform before eleven and made his way out of the station. The moment for which I had waited for so long had at last come. I had my enemies within my power. Together they could protect each other, but singly they were at my mercy. I did not act, however, with undue precipitation. My plans were already formed. There is no satisfaction in vengeance unless the offender has time to realize who it is that strikes him and why retribution has come upon him. I had my plans arranged by which I should have the opportunity of making the man who had wronged me understand that his old sin had found him out. It chanced that some days before, a gentleman who had been engaged in looking over some houses in the Brixton Road had dropped the key to one of them into my carriage. It was claimed that evening, and then returned, but in the interval I had taken a molding of it and had a duplicate constructed. By means of this I had access to at least one spot in this great city where I could rely on being free from interruption. How to get Drebber to the house was the difficult problem which I now had to solve. He walked down the road and went into one or two liquor shops, staying for nearly half an hour in the last of them. When he came out, he staggered in his walk and was evidently pretty well on. There was a hansom just in front of me, and he hailed it. I followed it so close with the nose of my horse. I followed it so close that the nose of my horse was within a yard of the driver the whole way. We rattled across the Waterloo Bridge and through miles of streets until. To my astonishment, we found ourselves back in the terrace in which he had boarded. I could not imagine what his intention was in returning there, but I went on and pulled up my cab a hundred yards or so away from the house. He entered it, and his hansom drove away. Could you give me a glass of water, please? My mouth gets dry with the talking. I handed him the glass, and he drank it down. <clears throat> That's better. Well, I waited for a quarter of an hour or more, when suddenly there came a noise like people struggling inside the house. Next moment the door was flung open and two men appeared, one of whom was Drebber, the other was a young chap I'd never seen before. This fellow had Drebber by the collar, and when they came to the head of the steps, he gave him a shove and a kick which sent him half across the road. "'You hound!' he cried, shaking a stick at him. "'I'll teach you to insult an honest girl!' He was so hot that I think he would have thrashed Drebber with his cudgel, and that, that cur staggered away down the road as fast as his legs would carry him. He ran as far as the corner, and then, seeing my cab, he hailed me and jumped in. "'Drive me to Halliday's private hotel,' said he. 
when I had him fairly inside my cab, my heart jumped so with joy that I feared lest this last moment my aneurysm might go wrong. I drove along slowly, weighing in my own mind what was best to do. I might take him right out into the country, and there, in some deserted lane, have my last interview with him. I had almost decided upon this when he resolved the problem for me. The craze for drink had seized him again, and he ordered me to pull up outside a gin palace. He went in, leaving word that I should wait for him. There he remained until closing time, and when he came out he was so far gone I knew the game was right in my hands. Don't imagine I intended to kill him in cold blood. It would only have been rigid justice had I done so, but I could not bring myself to do it. I had long determined that he would have a show for his life if he chose to take advantage of it. Among the many billets which I have filled in America during my wandering life, I was once a janitor and sweeper at the laboratory at York College. One day the professor was lecturing on poisons, and he showed his students some alkaloid, as he called it, which he had extracted from South American arrow poison, which was so powerful that the least grain meant instant death. I spotted the bottle in which this preparation was kept, and when they were all gone I helped myself to a little bit of it. I was a fairly good dispenser, so I worked this alkaloid into small, soluble pills, and each pill I put into a box with a similar pill made without the poison. I determined at the time when I had my chance my gentlemen should each have a draw at one of these boxes, while I ate the pill that remained. It would be quite as deadly and a good deal less noisy than firing across a handkerchief. From that day on, I always put my pillboxes about with me, and the time had now come when I was to use them. It was nearer to one than twelve, and a wild, bleak night, blowing hard and raining in torrents. Dismal as it was outside, I was glad within, so glad I could have shouted out for pure exultation. If any of you gentlemen have ever pined for a thing, longed for it during twenty long years, and suddenly found it within your reach, you would understand my feelings. I lit a cigar, puffed at it to steady my nerves, but my hand was trembling and my temples throbbing with excitement. As I drove, I could see old John Ferrier and sweet Lucy looking at me out through the darkness and smiling at me, just as plain as I see you all in this room. All the way they were up ahead of me, one on each side of the horse till I pulled up at the house in Brixton Road. There wasn't a soul to be seen, nor a sound to be heard except the dropping of the rain. When I looked in at the window, I found Drebber all huddled together in a drunken sleep. I shook him by the arm. It's time to get out, I said. All right, cabby, said he. I suppose he thought that we had come to the hotel he had mentioned, for he got out without another word and followed me down to the garden. I had to walk beside him to keep him steady, for he was a little top-heavy. When we come to the door, I opened it and let him inside the front room. I give you my word that all the way. The father and the daughter were walking in front of us. It's infernally dark, said he, stamping about. Well, we'll soon have light, I said, striking a match and putting it to a wax candle which I'd brought with me. Now, Enoch Drebber, 
I continued, turning to him and holding the candle to light my own face. Who am I? He gazed at me with bleared, drunken eyes for a moment, and then I saw a horror spring up in them and convulse his whole features, which showed he knew me. He staggered back with a livid face, and I saw the perspiration break out upon his brow and his teeth chattered in his head. At this sight, I leaned my back against the door and laughed loud and long. I'd always known that vengeance would be sweet, but I'd never hoped for the contentment of soul which now possessed me. You dog, I said. I've hunted you from Salt Lake City to St. Petersburg, and you've always escaped me. Now at last your wanderings have come to an end, for either you or I shall never see tomorrow's sunrise. He shrunk still further away as I spoke, and I could see on his face he thought I was mad. So I was for a time. The pulses in my temples beat like sledgehammers, and I believe I would have had a fit of some sort if the blood had not gushed from my nose and relieved me. "'What do you think of Lucy Ferrier now?' I cried, locking the door and shaking the key in his face. "'Punishment has been slow in coming,' I said, "'but it's overtaken you at last.' I saw his coward lips tremble as I spoke. He would have begged for his life, but he knew well it was useless. "'Would you murder me?' he stammered. <laughs> There's no murder, I answered. Who talks of murder and a mad dog? What mercy had you upon my poor darling when you dragged her from her father, slaughtered as he was, and bore her away to your accursed and shameless harem? It was not I who killed her father, he cried, but it was you who broke her innocent heart, I shrieked, thrusting the box before him. Let the high God judge between us. Choose and eat. There's death in one, life in the other. I shall take what you leave. Let us see if there's justice upon the earth or if we are ruled by chance. He cowered away with wild cries and prayers for mercy, but I drew my knife and held it at his throat till he had obeyed me. Then I swallowed the other, and we stood facing one another in silence for a minute or more, waiting to see which was to live and which was to die. Shall I ever forget the look which came over his face when the first warning pangs told him the poison was in his system? I laughed as I saw it, and I held Lucy's marriage ring up in front of his eyes. It was but for a moment, for the action of the alkaloid is rapid. A spasm of pain contorted his features. He threw his hands out in front of him, staggered, and then, with a hoarse cry, fell heavily upon the floor. I turned him over with my foot and placed my hand upon his heart. There was no movement. He was dead. Well, the blood had been streaming from my nose, but I'd taken no notice of it. I don't know what it was putting it into my head right upon the wall with it. Perhaps it was some mischievous idea of setting the police upon a wrong track, for I felt lighthearted and cheerful. I, I remember a German being found in New York with rash written up above him, and it was argued at the time in the newspapers that secret societies must have done it. And so I guessed what puzzled New Yorkers would puzzle the Londoners, so I dipped my finger in my own blood and printed out a convenient place upon the wall.
and then I walked down to my cab and found that there was nobody about, and that the night was very wild. I had driven some distance when I put my hand in my pocket where I usually kept Lucy's ring, and I found it was no longer there. I, I, I was thunderstruck at this, for it was the only memento I had of her. Thinking that I might have dropped it when I stooped over Drebber's body, I drove back, and leaving my cab on the side street, I went boldly up to the house, for I was ready to dare anything rather than lose the ring. When I arrived there, I walked straight into the arms of a police officer who was coming out, and only managed to disarm his suspicions by pretending to be hopelessly drunk. That was how Enoch Drebber came to his end. All I had to do then was do as much for Stangerson, and so pay off John Ferrier's debt. I knew he was staying at Halliday's private hotel, and I hung about all day, but he never came out. Fancy he suspected something when Drebber failed to put in an appearance. He was cunning, was Stangerson, always on his guard. If he thought he could keep me off by staying indoors, he was very much mistaken. I soon found out which was the window of his bedroom, and early next morning I took advantage of some ladders which were lying in the lane behind the hotel, and so made my way into his room in the gray hours of the dawn. I woke him up and told him the hour had come when he was to answer for the life he had taken so long ago. I described Drebber's death to him, gave him the same choice of the poison pills. Instead of grasping at his chance for safety, which I had offered him, he sprang from the bed and he flew at my throat. In self-defense, I stabbed him to the heart. It would have been the same in any case, for Providence would never have allowed his guilty hand to pick out anything but the poison. And I have little more to say. And it's as well, for I'm about done up I. I went on cabinet for a day or so, intending to keep at it until I could save enough money to take me back to America. I was standing in the yard when a ragged youngster asked if there was a cabbie called Jefferson Hope and said that his cab was wanted by a gentleman at 221B Baker Street. I went round, suspecting no harm, and next thing I knew, this young man here had the bracelets on my wrists as neatly snackled as I ever saw in my life. That's the whole of my story, gentlemen. You may consider me to be a murderer, but I hold I am just as much an officer of justice as you are. So thrilling had the man's narrative been, and his manner was so impressive that we sat silent and absorbed. Even the professional detectives, blasé as they were in every detail of crime, appeared to be keenly interested in the man's story. When he finished, we sat for some minutes in a stillness which was only broken by the scratching of Lestrade's pencil as he gave the finishing touches to his shorthand account. "'There is only one point upon which I should like a little more information,' Sherlock Holmes said at last. "'Who was your accomplice who came for the ring which I advertised?' The prisoner winked at my friend jocosely. "'I can tell my own secrets,' he said. "'But... I don't get other people into trouble. I saw your advertisement. I thought it might be a plant, or it might be the ring which I wanted. My friend volunteered to go and see. I think you'll own he did it rather smartly. Not a doubt of that, said Holmes heartily. 
Uh, now, gentlemen, the inspector remarked gravely, the forms of the law must be complied with. On Thursday, the prisoner must be brought before the magistrates and your attendance will be required. Until then, I shall be responsible for him. He rang the bell as he spoke, and Jefferson Hope was led off by a couple of warders, while my friend and I made our way out of the station and took a cab back to Baker Street. folks and that is the second to last chapter of this book altogether i hope you are excited for all of this because well we're almost done with this book but that just means we're going to be moving on to the next one now i've got a little bit of research to do before i can confidently say which one we're going to read next um there are a couple of different like theories as to how one is ought how one is ought how one ought to read through the sherlock holmes series so um I would have to look at my notes again before I remember which one we are going to be actually reading next. There you go, folks. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot in here, right, Gwendog? Gwendog says, this story is so much more than I ever expected. Yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? Okay, um, let's, uh, I'm going to throw a Chatterbrick question at you. Um, We'll do a spot of review, and then we will have uh, chapter eight. That's a seven. That's fully a seven. It's in Roman numerals. I'm a millennial. Chapter seven, the conclusion. Uh, Pretty Spade, I believe that is roundabout where I'm headed. There was one toward the end, I want to say. Some, like, some some extended stuff, which might want to sort of wrap up toward the beginning, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, We'll see. We shall see. Um, But, everybody, a bit of a chatterbreak question. Um, The case is over. Frankly, um, I think uh, as with many mystery stories, it's so very much about the mystery itself uh, that some of the some of the other elements of narrative um, change somewhat. Right? We started we started a second book in the middle of this book, <laughs> right? I mean that that whole that whole story of um, uh, uh, the sort of in the land of the saints that could have been its own short story by itself. Um. I want to I want to talk about some of the other sort of structures here, um, so that we can kind of get those out of the way. Let's talk about kind of conventional structures of uh, of mysteries, which means I guess it's less of a chatterbreak question and more, um, you know, we have followed the the various uh, the various moments, the various arms of uh, our friend Sid the Mystery Squid. Sid um, has taken us along uh, one of the more surprising arms, you will remember. Uh, the the three major arms being the material evidence, the persons of interest, and the world surrounding. Um, those first two are the ones we typically hang out with. And of course, there's material evidence, this word rash, um, the, the ring left in the body, the, the, the ample blood, and yet uh, lack of a bleeding wound. All of these are fantastic physical evidence, and you know we followed this uh, one of the most fascinating ones at the sort of switch uh, at the second victim being those two pills of which one is poison and one is not, the different manner of murders. All of this fascinating stuff, um, and then you know talking about persons of interest, this uh, this <laughs> this cab driver, um, uh, the this accomplice who would dress as an old woman and uh, try to 
<laughs> try to get this ring back from Sherlock uh, and does a magnificent job of it. Um, all this, some fascinating persons of interest. We don't actually dig too much into the persons of interest in this one. Not nearly like, um, uh, like our friend Poirot. However, we spent a ton of time in the world surrounding here, right? The the context of the world surrounding this, um, this issue of, of, of Mormons, and uh, although I will say, you know, a lot of this didn't depend on, like, specifics of history, um, specific moments or, uh, or details of history, at the same time, you know, we, we spent a lot of time discussing these other events here, and so I think that is fascinating. Um, with all that, I just want you all to uh, keep it on some of these uh, narrative elements here. The fact that we started this second story in the middle of this one, um, I, I would love to see the ways in which Arthur Conan Doyle sort of bends the traditional construction of a story. Um, because this first one has been a pretty interesting construction, right? It's been a strangely shaped story. Um we, we have oftentimes seen the, uh, you know, the beginning. We see, you know, how the how the crime scene, we have come upon it. Um, we see the middle wherein Sherlock Holmes gets all consternated and is trying to find the proper clues. And then the end, Act 3, in which uh, Sherlock Holmes, A, reveals that he has solved the thing and then subsequently reveals how, right? The big reveal, uh, the, the parlor moment, whatever you like. Um, we've seen that before. And yet... Here, we find that there is this big section starting in the dead center middle of this story where we take a deep, deep look at the history of some of our persons of interest and where they have existed in the world surrounding. Keep an eye on that structure. A spot of review. Um, in our last two chapters of the day, um, as we lead up to this final chapter, the conclusion, um, these last two chapters have described the, the details of... Jefferson Hope's life since fleeing from Salt Lake City. First, John Ferrier is killed. Lucy Ferrier is dragged back to Salt Lake City and dies of heartbreak within a month over the fate of herself and her father. Jefferson Hope has elected to become judge, jury, and executioner in his own words. Um, I'd be curious to know how long that phrase has been around um, in, the, in the context of being all those things at once. Um, he heads to Salt Lake City, unfortunately has to delay his revenge somewhat because of how well protected they are and how poor he is. Um, and when he returns five years later, they have disappeared. They're gone. They're no longer even Mormons. Um, they have headed out east. He follows them east. They head across to Europe. He follows them to Europe. He bounces from city to city with them, always just a bit behind because one of them is still wealthy. The other one works as uh, the wealthy one's assistant. Uh, and Jefferson Hope himself has very little money saved up by which to follow them. Finally, he tracks them to London, gets his sights on them. And then our previous chapter is all about his account of what happened here in London. He says he he was able to get, um, uh, let's see, Stangerson and Drebs. He was able to get uh, Drebber. Um, uh, he was able to follow Drebber on a drunken bender uh, and convince him to get into the cab. He went to a house that he had stolen the key for, copied the key for, uh, uh, a few days earlier, he knew it was on the market, so he knew it would be unoccupied. He headed in there and offered him a choice. See, Jefferson Hope had worked um, in a college at York. He had worked at York College for a while. I believe that was it. Uh, was it York? Was it Yale? Might have been Yale. Um, he worked at a college as a janitor for a while and was able to steal a little bit of alkali, which is a pretty powerful poison, and made two pills. One of them poison, one of them safe. He offers 
to let God decide, or fate, or whoever it might be, uh, in his own words. Um, he offers to let, let God or fate decide and uh, offers one of these pills. They are identical, we must assume, um, to Dreber. Dreber takes one. And uh, in his excitement, Jefferson Hope uh, begins bleeding at the nose pretty profusely. Turns out, uh, in Jefferson eyes, justice was done. Uh, he himself takes the other pill and is safe, but uh, Drebber does indeed drop dead to the floor. Um, as as uh, Stangerson reminds him who he is and why he's here, shows him the ring and everything. Um, in his excitement, he drops the ring, um, looks at all this blood around here, and thinks uh, sort of in his excitement to try and throw the police off of his trail. Um, he's just kind of giddy from having finally succeeded at this, you know, 20-year revenge. And... Uh, on the wall, he remembered something, uh, you know, being written on the wall somewhere in New York or something like that, um, uh, somewhere off in the world, and figured, well, what gets them confused in New York will probably work just as well here. Uh, he'll try to throw the, the suspicion onto some secret society or some nonsense. Writes Rosh on the wall, German word for revenge. Okay, fine. He follows Stangerson now. Stangerson was always a bit wily. Always a bit more clever. He follows Stangerson to his hotel, manages to get in via the window into the hotel, and offers uh, wakes up Stangerson, offering him the same deal with the two pills. Stangerson tries to lunge at Jefferson Hope, at which point Jefferson stabs him in the heart. He never takes the pills. Uh, those pills are the ones that we found left at the crime scene that uh, Sherlock Holmes subsequently tested on a geriatric dog. Um... And uh, such is the fate of our two victims. He spends a couple more days as a cabbie, trying to make enough money to get himself back to America, but in that time, Sherlock Holmes tracks him down. And now, he's under arrest. His heart's giving out, though. I do wonder if he'll ever make it to trial. Chapter 7. The Conclusion We had all been warned to appear before the magistrates upon Thursday, but when the Thursday came, there was no occasion for our testimony. A hired judge had taken the matter in hand, and Jefferson Hope had been summoned before a tribunal where strict justice would be meted out to him. On the very night of his capture, his aneurysm burst, and he was found in the morning stretched out upon the floor of his cell with a placid smile upon his face, as though he had been able in his dying moments look back upon a useful life, and upon work well done. Gregson and the Stroud will be wild about his death, Holmes remarked as we chatted over it the next evening. Where will their grand advertism be now? I don't see that they have very much to do with his capture, I answered. What you do in this world is a matter of no consequence, returned my companion bitterly. The question is, what can you make people believe that you have done? Never mind, he continued more brightly after a pause. I should not have missed the investigation for anything. There's been no better case within my recollection. Simple as it was, there were several most instructive points about it. <laughs> Simple, I ejaculated. Well, hardly it can be described as otherwise, said Sherlock Holmes, smiling in my surprise. The proof of its intrinsic simplicity is that without any help save a few ordinary deductions, I was able to lay my hand upon the criminal within three days. Okay, that's true, I said. 
I've already explained to you that what is out of common is usually a guide rather than a hindrance. In solving this problem, or a problem of this sort, a grand thing is to be able to reason backwards. It's a very useful accomplishment and a very easy one, but people do not practice it very much. In the everyday affairs of life, it is more useful to reason forward, so the other comes to be neglected. There are fifty who can reason synthetically for every one who can reason analytically. I confess, said I, I do not quite follow you. I hardly expected that you would. Let me see if I can make it clearer. Most people, if you describe a train of events to them, will tell you what the results would be. They can put those events together in their minds and argue from them that something will come to pass. There are very few, however, who, if you tell them a result, would be able to evolve from their own inner consciousness what the steps were which led up to that result. This powers what I mean when I talk of reasoning backwards or analytically. All right, I understand, said I. Now, this was a case in which you were given the result and had to find everything else yourself. Now, let me endeavour to show you the different steps of my reasoning. To begin with, the beginning. I approached the house, as you know, on foot, and with my mind entirely free from all depressions, I naturally began to examine the roadway, and there, as I have already explained to you, I saw clearly the marks of a cab, which I ascertained by inquiry must have been there during the night. I satisfied myself that it was a cab and not a private carriage, by the narrow gauge of the wheels. The ordinary London growler is considerably less wide than a gentleman's brougham. This was the first point I gained. I then walked slowly down the garden path, which happened to be composed of a clay soil particularly suitable for taking impressions. No doubt it appeared to you to be a trampled line of slush, but to my trained eyes every mark upon its surface had a meaning. There was no branch of detective science which is so important and so much neglected as the art of tracing footsteps. Happily, as I've always laid great stress upon it, and much practice has made it second nature to me. I saw the heavy footmarks of the constables, but I saw also the track of the two men who had first passed through the garden. It was easy to tell that they had been before the others, because in places their marks had been entirely obliterated by the others coming up on top of them. In this way my second link was formed, which told me the nocturnal visitors were two in number, one of remarkable height, as I calculated from the length of his stride, and the other fashionably dressed, to judge by the small and elegant impression left by the boots. Upon entering the house, this last inference was confirmed. My well-booted man lay before me. The tall one, then, had done the murder, if murder there was. There was no wound upon the dead man's person, but the agitated expression upon his face assured me that he had foreseen his fate before it came upon him. Men who die from heart disease or any sudden natural cause never have any chance to exhibit agitation upon their features. Having sniffed the dead man's lips, I detected a slightly sour smell and came to the conclusion he had had poison forced upon him. Again, I argued that it had been forced upon him by the hatred and fear that was expressed upon his face. By the method of exclusion, I arrived at this result, for no other hypothesis could meet the facts. I do not imagine it is a very unheard-of idea. The forcible administration of poison is by no means a new thing in criminal annals. The cases of Dolsky in Odessa and of Luturiel in Montpellier will occur at once to any toxicologist. And now came the great question as to... The reason why? Robbery had not been the object of the murder, for nothing was taken. Was it politics, then, or was it a woman? That was the question which confronted me. I was inclined from the first to the latter supposition. Political assassins are only too glad to do their work and to fly. This murderer had, on the contrary, done the work very deliberately, and the perpetrator had left his tracks all over the room, showing that he had been there all the time. 
must have been a private wrong and not a political one then, which called for such a methodical revenge. When the inscription was discovered upon the wall, I was more inclined than ever to my opinion. The thing was, too, evidently a blind. When the ring was found, however, it settled the question. Clearly, the murderer had used it to remind his victim of some dead or absent woman. It was at this point I asked Gregson whether he had inquired to his telegram to Cleveland as to any particular point in Mr. Drebber's former career. He answered, you remember, in the negative. I then proceeded to make a careful examination of the room, which confirmed to me my opinion as to the murderer's height and furnished me with additional details as to the trichinopoly cigar and the length of his nails. I had already come to the conclusion, since there were no signs of a struggle, that the blood which covered the floor had burst from the murderer's nose in his excitement. I could perceive that the track of blood coincided with the track of his feet. It is seldom that any man, unless he is very full-blooded, breaks out in this way through emotion, so I hazarded the opinion that the criminal was probably a robust and ruddy-faced man. Events proved I had judged correctly. Having left the house, I proceeded to do what Gregson had neglected. I telegraphed to the head of police at Cleveland, limiting my inquiry to the circumstances connecting the marriage of Enoch Drebber. The answer was conclusive. It told me that Drebber had already applied for the protection of law against an old rival in love named Jefferson Hope, and that this same hope was at present in Europe. I knew now that I held the clue to the mystery in my hand, and all that remained was to secure the murderer. I had already determined in my own mind that the man who had walked into the house with Drebber was none other than the man who had driven the cab. The marks on the road showed me that the horse had wandered on a good way, and it would have been impossible had there been anyone in charge of it. Where then could the driver be, unless he was inside the house? Again, it is absurd to suppose that any sane man would carry out a deliberate crime under the very eyes, as it were, of a third person who was sure to betray him. Lastly, supposing one man wished to dog another through London, what better means could he get than to turn cab driver? All these considerations led me to the irresistible conclusion that Jefferson Hope was to be found among the Jarvies of the metropolis. If... It had been, that there was no reason to believe. What? If he had been? If he had been one, there was no reason to believe that he had ceased to be. On the contrary, from his point of view, any sudden change would likely draw suspicion to himself. He would, probably, for at least a time, continue to perform his duties. There was no reason to suppose he was going out under an assumed name. Why should he change his name in a country where no one knew his original one? I therefore organised my uh, street urchin detective corps and sent them systematically to every cab proprietor in London until they ferreted out the man that I wanted. How well they succeeded and how quickly I took advantage of it are still fresh in your recollection. The murder of Stangerson was an incident which was entirely unexpected, but which hardly in any case could have been prevented. Through it, you know, I came into possession of the pills, the existence of which I had already surmised. You see, the whole thing is a chain of logical sequences without a break or flaw. <laughs> well, that is wonderful, I cried. Your merits should be publicly recognised. You should publish an account of the case. If you don't, I'll do it for you. You may do what you like, Doctor, he answered. See here, he continued, handing a paper over to me. Look at this. It was the echo for the day, and the paragraph to which he pointed was devoted to the case in question. The public, it said, have lost a sensational threat through the sudden death of the man Hope, who was suspected in the murder of Mr. Enoch Drebber and Mr. Joseph Stangerson. The details of the case will probably never be known, though we are informed upon good authority that the crime was the result of an old-standing and romantic feud, 
in which love and Mormonism bore a part. It seems that both the victims belonged, in their younger days, to the Latter-day Saints, and Hope, the deceased prisoner, hails also from Salt Lake City. If the case has no other effect, it at least brings out the most striking manner the efficiency of our detective police force, and will serve as a lesson to all foreigners that they would do wisely to settle upon their feuds at home, and not to carry them to British soil. It is an open secret that the credit of this smart capture belongs entirely to the well-known Scotland Yard officials, Messrs. Lestrade and Gregson. The man was apprehended, it appears, in the rooms of a certain Mr. Sherlock Holmes, who has himself, as an amateur, shown some talent in the detective line, and who, with such instructors, may hope in time to attain some degree of their skill. It is expected that a testimonial of some sort will be presented to the two officers as a fitting recognition of their services. "'Didn't I tell you so when we got started?' cried Sherlock Holmes with a laugh. That is the result of all of our study in Scarlet, to give them a testimonial. Eh, never mind, I answered. I got all the facts in my journal, and the public shall know them. In the meantime, you must content yourself by the consciousness of success, like the Roman miser. Populus me sibilat amici plaudio, ipsidomai simul ac nimons, completor in arca, in English. The public hiss at me, but I cheer myself when in my own house I contemplate the coins in my strong box. Ay, 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 what a tumultuous couple of paragraphs that got to at the end. Orly Rowe says, This was one of the first stories that really, really ignited my love of English detective novels, and what got me into reading Agatha Christie, Ruth Rendell, P.D. James, Elizabeth George, and so many others. Fantastique, Orly Rose. I am glad to hear it. Well, everybody, let me tell you just how annoyed I am at this, uh, at this wrestling around behind me. Um, everyone, this has been a joy. I do hope that you are ready to read. Let me see if I can find my notes here. They're buried away somewhere. Hold on a second. Um, Sherlock Holmes? And the search function in Google is not my favorite. It's decent, but it's not awesome. I think we're on to the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes next. I believe we are. I'm pretty sure it's either that or the sign of four. Um, but, uh, yeah, everyone, thank you so very, very much for joining me here today. Um, as I have expressed, this is just the first in, frankly, many, uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. We are going to be reading through these at a pretty steady pace. You can join me once again next week as we will begin our next Sherlock Holmes adventure. In the meantime, I do hope you've enjoyed this one. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. If you are looking for back episodes of this, go ahead, look for uh, Linktree slash SCS playlists. That is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash SCS playlists. That is plural. Um, and of course, uh, you can use the playlists command at any time here in Twitch if you want to bring that up. 
Um, as you can see, we've read a considerable few things, and I wanted to go ahead and make a spot where you can find all of these things. Uh, if you want to find these wherever you listen to podcasts, go ahead and search for Vintage Sidecar. Uh, we've got a few short stories up there, as well as this one. I've got an editing backlog, but I'm doing so much editing every single week that I do not know if or when I will get to that. It's not if. It'll, it's definitely when, because um, I would I want all of that stuff to be... I mean, I read it. I spent all the time to read it. I would love for it to be available up there. Um, and, of course, the stuff that is not available there should be available in the Google Drive. All at once, perhaps, perhaps not. Um, <laughs> as we've had uh, some... Boy, have we ever had our share of hosting issues. Gang, oofa doofa. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> Sparkle Love Good says, interest level 8. Historical accuracy, a generous 4. Uh, I'm curious about that Sparkle Lovegood. Um, do you t what, what part do you take issue with? Is it the alkali? <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Um, it's got to be the alkali, right? Uh, everyone, thank you so very much for joining me. And uh, like I said, if you want to find out more about the world of Caldera, it is, uh, well, we'll talk more about it tomorrow. But you can definitely think along the lines of uh, Mythos. Um, I see... <laughs> Army Freedom says Illuminati. Uh, yes, and uh, I mean, frankly, yes, they would play directly into the world of Caldera as well. Uh, this is another world that, frankly, I don't know if we will ever... I don't know if we will ever ourselves jump into this as a... Um, uh, as like an RPG adventure, but I'm certainly not opposed to the idea. But, you know, the Realms of Resetus have been absolutely delightful. Um... We have, uh, <laughs> we've had a ton of fun over there, uh, and I only aim to continue to do so. Um, but yeah, I'm developing out this, this additional world, and this one, this one's gonna look a lot more like our current world. Um, I've got, I've got, basically it is a parallel world, like an alternate history kind of thing, um, that uh, takes place kind of alongside our own, uh, but there are big elements of the, the, the world unseen. Like I said, very, very Lovecraftian. Uh, but we can talk about it more tomorrow. Because, of course, Wednesdays are our tabletop RPG day. Um, this being Tuesdays, which are currently our day for Vintage Sidecar, um, where we shed some light on Classic Lit. Wednesdays currently dedicated to Side Cannons! That is our um, that is our sidecar uh, tabletop RPG wing, and then of course on Thursdays we are reading through Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. Currently reading through Lord of the Rings. Uh, had to had to take a break last week because my voice was crashing and burning, um, and there we have it. Everybody, thank you a ton for joining me. Let's see if there's anybody to raid on over to right now. Um, because boy, my the rest of my day has to be occupied by some some editing that I got behind on. Everyone, thank you a ton. Girls run these worlds are up right now. I don't know what exactly they're working on. Oh, mice in the herb garden. Let's jump in here. If you want to join us, do not click anything. Just hold on tight. Oh, and I unrated. Hold on. Here we go. I really hate that it doesn't let me look at chat while I've got this up. That's a that is a nonsensical feature. Everyone, have a fantastic evening, afternoon, night, morning, wherever the hell you're at in your schedule. I'll see y'all later. Bye-bye. <laughs>